0: the next couple of weeks, we're going to be kind of doing a mini-series in the bigger series, and the mini-series is following God's plan when we don't understand, and I think this is a really important thing for us, especially in our day and age, Um, and as we look at what's happening in Paul's life at this point, remember, Paul has been in prison for two years, and um, You know, he's been kind of connecting with with the governor, regularly seeing him, ministering to others. He has some freedom um, in terms of people coming and going. He's writing letters, etc. But a new governor comes to town. And that's what we're going to read today. So in Acts 25, verses 1 through 12, it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way." Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So there's this change in, in governors. There was Felix, and he gets actually forced out, and then Festus comes in. And when Festus is looking at, you know, his new job, He's doing like anyone else if you're in charge of, a, of an area he wants to do. You know, he wants to kind of, you know, not make the mistakes of his predecessor. He wants to try to, you know, kind of clean up, uh, you know, things and all. And, and at some point he comes across this, this Paul. And what I think that Festus sees Paul as is he sees Paul as an opportunity, it's an opportunity, it's an opportunity to immediately distance himself from Felix, to show that he's not the ruthless, brutal Felix who any time there was insurrection from the from the Jewish people, he would put them down. He's different. He's going to show himself to be what Romans kind of prided themselves on being, on being reasonable and being fair, but also being firm when it comes to the law. And he sees Paul as this great opportunity. But of course, he doesn't understand the situation nearly as well as he thinks he does. And so he walks into this situation thinking like, "Ah, I can figure it out. I can sort it out. I can come to a resolution. Yeah, that Felix guy was an idiot. I'm I'm not him. I'm better. And we see things that he does here that kind of shows his reasonableness. That he does try to take some time to understand the situation. But there's other things that show that he's a little bit overconfident in his abilities. And primarily we see that when, he's, when he tells Paul, "Hey Paul, um, you know, I just got back from Jerusalem. I talked to the guys there. Do you want to go down there?" And it seems like somehow Festus had not heard that the reason Paul's in Caesarea is because the last time he was in Jerusalem that there was his opponents were plotting to kill him even if it meant attacking the Roman soldiers. Somehow he, does, he doesn't get this. He doesn't know this. And so he's saying, hey, you want to go back? And it also seems to do something that, you know, I think is kind of typical whenever you have a group come in. You know, and we've seen this happen in history again and again. I don't want to give examples of it right now, but, but a group comes into an area, doesn't understand the... You know the local relationships, the you know, and all of it's going on, the politics and everything, and thinks that these are all just, in their mind, kind of petty. They're small things. Certainly, reasonable people wouldn't get so upset that they would that they would uh, try to kill somebody or bring false charges, or worse, you know, try to ambush a Roman guard. And again, we've seen this happen again and again, especially when kind of occupying armies or occupying governments go into another area. You know, Africa's kind of living through the, you know, the well-meaning United Nations and saying, hey, we're going to draw borders around these nations, and we're going to say these are now your African nations, and totally not paying attention to to the tribal politics. And trying to say, hey, you, you three tribes that have been fighting against each other for centuries, you're now one government. You know, be nice. And this is where Festus kind of finds himself. He's, it's kind of like that Roman superiority of, yes, these, these people that I'm in charge of, you know, they got their little, you know, squabbles, which surely a reasonable, well-educated, you know, experienced Roman can handle. This leaves Paul in a quandary. You know, what should what should Paul do? I, I kind of want to ask the question is, you know, what would I do? What would you do? if If you had been like, if you had known that God says, you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. And then somehow... When you get to Jerusalem, all these things happen, and now you find yourself imprisoned in Caesarea. What would you do? Well, you might be more, you know, how I am. I might be thinking, like, how do I get to Rome? How do I get to Rome from prison in Caesarea? If you're like me, you would think, step one, get out of prison. Right? That seems to be step one, get out of prison. Well, how do I get out of prison? Well, one way is if they actually have a legitimate trial, I'm gonna be released. And Felix has pretty much said, you should be released, but I'm not releasing you. Festus is saying the same thing. There's no charges against you, how can I, he's got this quandary that we're gonna talk about next week where Festus is like, How can I send you to Rome to appeal to Caesar when there are no legitimate charges against you? Festus knows he should let him go. He's not letting him go. We know what Felix was waiting for. Felix was probably hoping that maybe some of the rabble-rousers would go away, the tensions would, would go down, and really what he's waiting for is a bribe. So, if I'm... Paul, and I'm thinking, step one, get out of prison. Well, I'm not going to get out of prison through the, the way that should happen, through the justice system, so pay the bribe, raise the money. Paul certainly could have. He had the supporters. It wouldn't have been an issue for him to, to get the bribe. But Paul understood something. And it's something we're going to unpack much more next week. But Paul understood that no matter what he did, that no matter what actions he took, he needed to reflect Christ in all that he had done. And I think if Paul had even considered the bribe, I'm not saying he would have, but had he even considered the bribe, or if he and his followers were sitting around talking about it, the question that would have ultimately come up would: would Jesus, in the same situation, have paid a bribe to get out of prison? What would that say about the gospel and and, and what Paul was saying Christ had done in his life if he just says, okay, I'm going to play the game like everyone else? I think ultimately he... He says it's it's not, it's wrong, it's not Christ like, and so for two years he's gonna stay there and he's gonna take advantage of the opportunity to show the gospel. But he, here comes Festus, and now he's in this quandary, and the quandary is do I trust the governor? Do I trust the governor? Festus is clearly not Felix. Festus is actually trying to resolve the case. Do I trust the governor to protect me? Well, if we go back to another governor in a similar situation, which by the way, there's definite parallels as John pointed out last week, two weeks ago actually, that the trial of Jesus and the trial of Paul, there's some similarities. And here, Festus is much more like Pontius Pilate. And when Pontius Pilate was confronted with doing the right thing, he didn't do the right thing. He did what he considered the reasonable thing. The reasonable thing was, I got this potential riot on my hands The reasonable thing is okay, even though I know it's an injustice to this one man, better injustice to one man than all of the violence and all of the people that are going to get hurt, and especially he himself would have been hurt. He does the reasonable thing. And Pilate is considered to be a, you know, by the Romans, you know, pretty decent governor. Festus, if he's more like like Pilate, even if he is reasonable and he's trying to be just, it's not going to work out well, and Paul knows it. I think the other question Paul is is resonating with Paul is not just how can I be, you know, how should I be Christ-like? How should I show who I am in Christ in all these situations. But I think the other question is, still, how do I get to Rome? How do I fulfill God's will and get to Rome? And I think he realized immediately going to Jerusalem was not the way to Rome. And I think we need to appreciate, I think... We need to appreciate, you know, Paul's situation. We sometimes think of these, these people in the Bible as like they're somehow like, like superhuman, like they're super Christian. Paul didn't know all the events. If it, It's actually kind of confusing. In fact, Paul very well, we know that on the way to Jerusalem, Paul had well-meaning Christian friends telling him why he shouldn't go and in the middle of the situation Paul very well could have had well meaning Christian friends who were saying see you know the reason you're here in prison is because you didn't you know you're not being faithful it's because you're not doing what God wants it's because you're making mistakes and of course the reason that That would be the case is because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. If God wanted Paul in Rome, why even go to Jerusalem in the first place? Just go to Rome. Or when you get to Jerusalem, why does God allow all of this trouble to happen? Why does it end up with Paul being imprisoned by Felix and not released for two years? None of this makes sense. And well-meaning Christians can look at things like that and and say, see, God's closing doors. And because all these doors are closed, and by the way, I'm not criticizing those of you who think that God's will is always open door after open door after open door, because I have thought that in my own life. But what we need to understand is that Sometimes God's will goes to places where the doors are closed. There's no open door for Paul. It doesn't make sense. What should he do? And at this critical juncture, at this critical juncture, Paul knows. He doesn't understand how God's going to do it, but he understands this. God's God's will, God's direction was, you're going to Rome. The choice had to be Rome. And so he appeals to Caesar. He appeals to Caesar, and I don't know that he fully appreciates the fact that that Festus is like, I don't even know what he's appealing to. I'm not sure. I don't think he does it to kind of put Festus in a difficult position. But there's no guarantees that Caesar is going to see him. Caesar might think his case is not that important. He may have to be there for, you know, a couple years or more. He doesn't know if Caesar is going to have these political favors he's trying to earn by, by doing what the Jewish leaders want. And I think we need to appreciate Paul's situation. Paul doesn't have, you know, God hasn't laid out for him, here's what's going to happen, here's what's going to happen, here's what's going to happen. And let me just tell you, Paul's experience should be the typical experience for those of us who are living the life of faith in Jesus Christ. There's not always a clear path. There's not always when there's options and choices this is obviously what God wants. Otherwise, it's not really faith. Faith is is about trust, faith is about relationships, faith is about following God, even sometimes when it leads to places that don't make sense. And so, while we might think reasonably, God wants us to follow the path of least resistance, Or we might think reasonably that God wants us to always go in a straight line because it's the shortest distance between two points. It's not always the case. What we need to be able to do, and this is why here at the church we're so focusing on discipleship. We're so focusing on trying to to grow in our understanding of the gospel, understanding of the word, and being able to live the word, is because, like Paul, when we get to these difficult decisions, and difficult in the sense that it's not clear, we know this. If we're growing in our faith, if we're grounded in the word, we can ask these two questions. Which decision is God's will? And which decision is exhibiting Christ-likeness? How can I make the decision? How can I follow the path that is clearly God's will, but also has a consistent witness of who Jesus is? And that can be scary sometimes, I know. It's scary because sometimes that means walking away from what seems safe and comfortable and reasonable. It means, it means suddenly deciding you're going to just in the middle of your career go somewhere else to go to school to train for ministry. When I went to seminary, the average age of people who went to seminary, 33. What's that telling you? It's telling you the majority of the people at seminary are not going from high school to college to seminary. It means they're going high school, maybe college, then they're in a career, and then somewhere in the middle of the career, they're doing the thing that everybody, if you have a financial advisor, tells you not to do which is change career, and not just change career, change career for a less lucrative job. One of the first guys I met at Southwestern Seminary, I, didn't, I never even got his name, but we were kind of, just kind of walking across campus, and he was wearing a blue shirt, and at Southwestern, if you wore a blue shirt, it meant you were on the custodial staff, or the you know, the, what they call the physical plant, you were taking care of the yard, all these kind of jobs. So he was wearing a blue shirt and we were just talking and we were kind of walking and I asked him, oh, what did you do before you came here? And he was older than me, I was, I was actually 33 at the time. He's older than me, He's maybe late 30s, early 40s. And he goes, oh, I was a software engineer. Oh, okay. So now you're, you know, going to seminary and working a minimum wage job to pay the bills as you're, you know, cleaning out the bathrooms. Does that make sense? It makes no sense. Not from the world's perspective. It makes no sense. We have to accept that sometimes those decisions are going to be... And some of you are like, whew, glad I don't have to worry about that because you know what? I'm retired. Let me tell you this. This is why you should be afraid of this. Because if you get serious about your faith and you get serious about following Christ, he may disrupt your retirement plans. That's one of the things that, you know, that I think we have to understand as Christians is that there's no retirement from ministry. I was having um, dinner with some of my high school friends and some of them are already retired and I'm like, like I told you guys a couple weeks ago, I'm like, I can't even fathom retirement. It doesn't compute with me. And if I'm not doing something and getting paid for it, I'm gonna do it like I used to do it before and just do it for free. Ministry doesn't come with retirement. You might think like, me, go back to school? I know of one borderline crazy person at this church who has decided to go back to school to first of all finish a master's degree in music and then to start a nursing degree. Borderline crazy. She's my wife, by the way. Why? Everybody goes, oh, that's neat. This is, if I tell anybody that, oh, you know, Cheryl's trying to start a nursing degree. Oh, that's neat. It's always good to keep learning. It's like, no, it's not. Just keeping learning. It's getting ready, being prepared for whatever Christ has before you. Not just saying, Oh, I've done my time. I can now just sit back and retire. There's so many other areas in our lives, so many other areas in our lives where 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 God is is just ready to use us but here's the problem the problem is many Christians limit God to what they can understand understand this God is not random God is not capricious God is not irrational but God is not limited to your ability to understand. You understand the difference? Ultimately, God is, is supra reasonable, supra rational. It's just that we can't see it all, all the time. We don't know why different things are happening in our life, just like it would happen with Paul. It's sometimes beyond our ability to know. It's beyond our ability to reason out fully. Again, it comes back to faith. You see, if I limit God to what I can understand, that's a serious limitation on an omnipotent, omniscient, infinite God. Serious limitation. Not just how he's going to work in my life or in our church, but really how I see him doing anything in this world because he's going to be limited to what I can understand. I think about it as, I think it's part of why Jesus says, you know, we need to have the faith of little children. And we just spent a week with our three daughters who are now adults. And if those of you who've raised kids or, um, you know, most of our families who have kids are kind of in this—not here today. But there's that, there's that age when our children—they they trust us so much. They, they, they just do—they they go wherever mom and dad say. They do what we say because they trust us. Now, some of you might be going, "Well, that was never my kid," but. Most of us, there's a time in our children's lives where they're like that. And especially about the things they didn't understand. What's the adjustment sometimes we have to make as parents is when they no longer trust us. That you want them to grow up and you want them to be able to think but they no longer trust us to even come for our counsel. They no longer trust us to even kind of seek out. And I think when they come to things that they don't understand, they would rather go somewhere else. Now come off of that, that example and bring this back to your Life in Christ. That there might have been a time when you had this more childlike faith, where you trusted God. You trusted Him, and and you needed to because you didn't know anything. But sometimes, as we mature in our faith, we stop trusting God, we stop trusting His Word. We don't even go to him or go to you know, pastors or others for advice. We don't even seek counsel. We don't try to understand what his word says about situations. We just make up our minds. And this especially becomes a problem when we don't know what to do or when there seems to be multiple options. Paul finds himself in this situation. He finds himself as a man of faith in a situation that to everyone else doesn't make sense. And what we're going to see here is how God uses that and uses Paul's faith to suddenly do something amazing. Let's go back and look at this text a little more closely from verse 1 on down to about midway through this passage. One of the things I think we need to understand is that the enemies of Christ are relentless. They're relentless in their efforts to destroy Christianity. I want you to understand, though, not all non-Christians are active enemies of Christ. Not all, but I think the ones who are they 're usually in two groups there 's usually one group who really understands the claims of Christ, who really understands that that what Christ was saying and really what we just came from the Christmas season is that The reason he's the Savior is because we need a Savior. Because there is something seriously wrong with us. Not just each of us, all of us. We needed a Savior. And the Savior wasn't just to pull us out of the fire. But the Savior, Jesus Christ, came to not just rescue us from the fire, but then to transform us, to take that, that part of us that was seriously damaged, or worse, and change it. And there are people that really understand Christianity and they really understand what's at stake. Jesus wants to take the things I like. I like my pride. I like my materialistic ways. I like being selfish. I like thinking of me, mine, and those around me that are the ones I choose to care for. I like being the captain of my life and my, and, and, you know, my destiny. I like all that. And they understand that Christianity says, you have to let go of that if you want to be saved. It doesn't mean Christ might now give it back to you. But before Christ can give any of that back to you, you have to let go of it. And there are people who understand that. And there are people who are opposed to Christianity because they actually understand the claims of Christ. They actually understand when it says you need to die to self. They actually understand it. I have found when I used to teach at HBA, some of the non-Christian kids there understood Christianity better than the kids who claimed to be Christians. A lot of the kids who claimed to be Christians just thought Christianity was like, oh yeah, 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 I believe in this stuff and yeah, when I need it, you know, I'll call out to God, I'll pray, but pretty much I'm just going to live my life the way I was going to live it anyway. But when I would talk to some of the non-Christian kids, they really understood it. They understood what it meant to really give your life to Christ. Well, I told you there are two groups. The other group is people that are opposed to Christianity because they don't understand it. They think it's something. They think it's some kind of legalism or some kind of moralism, or they think it's these, these super-pious, self-righteous people trying to impose their, you know, their ways and their views upon everyone else. And you know, usually, you know, they'll look back in church um, in world history. And apparently in 2,000 years, the church, for most people, in, at least most people in the United States, who grew up in the last 20, 30, 40 years, over the last 2,000 years, the church has apparently only managed to do two things, the Crusades and the Inquisition. That's about it. And both of these are horrible things. This is what so many people understand that Christianity is. And the modern version is the same heart and same spirit that inspired the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition. They don't know what Christianity is. Maybe they had a, you know, they watched TV. One of the differences in modern TV, and I say TV, which shows my age, could be anything, streaming, right? Right? But one of the differences in, in modern as opposed to when I was growing up is that you know, no one really criticized, not just Christianity, they didn't really criticize any religion on TV. You watch 70s and 80s TV, it's almost like religion-free. But in modern times, what a lot of young people are growing up on is when there's a Christian character, they're almost always a hypocrite. They're a bigot. They're close-minded. This is who they think Christians are. And there's a lot of people who are opposed to Christianity because they think they know what Christianity is. And this is going to be a gross oversimplification, but I don't think it's, it's wrong. I think what, what's happening in our society today is that those who really understand Christianity are using those who don't understand it to then oppose Christianity. It's relentless in their efforts. And we see this, we see this with, it's been two years, and apparently the chief instigators, the men of Asia, They had gone back. Now it's the chief priests and principal men of the Jews from Jerusalem. They're the ones doing it now. Two years later, they haven't stopped. They haven't given up. Two years later, they're relentless, and they're trying the same old thing. They're not actually bringing any charges. They're not doing saying anything that's violated Roman law. They're not even saying things that have violated their own laws. They're just, as far as Festus can figure out, is they're disagreeing over whether Jesus resurrected from the dead or not. Relentless. What I love is what we see about midway through where it says Paul argued in his defense, and this is kind of a summary of it, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. He's saying exactly the same thing he said two years. You know why? Because nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And what, you know, what do I think Luke is trying to show us about Paul and in so doing show us about who we, need, who we are, and that is that Christians... Christians must be relentless in standing for the gospel in a way that reveals who God is. You see, Paul is not meeting false accusations with false accusations. Paul's not even meeting false accusations with true accusations. He's not telling Festus, Festus, you need to go check out. You need to go talk to these people. Here's, here's five people, go talk to them and they'll tell you two years ago the guys that are talking to you right now accusing me of these things, they were planning to ambush your soldiers. He doesn't do any of that. He's not just giving in. He's not just saying, hey, you know, If I die, I die. No. He doesn't see himself as the Christ who was the sacrifice for us all. No. He stands for the gospel, but he does it in such a way that reveals who God is. If we get nothing else from the life of Paul, we need to understand this. It is not about Paul living or dying. It is not about Paul succeeding or failing. It is not about Paul being comfortable or uncomfortable. For Paul, it is about the gospel. It is about the gospel proclaimed, the gospel lived. He doesn't want to proclaim a gospel that is in any way inconsistent with how he's living. He cannot talk about truth and about love and about grace and about forgiveness and then not have that in his life. This is why we need to understand when he appeals to Caesar, he's not appealing to Caesar for protection for his life. He could, again, be imprisoned or killed. The emperor could just ignore him never even address his case. Or he could say, hey, why don't you just beat the truth out of him? No. As we said before, Paul had options. He had other ways. But none of those other ways would allow him to stand for the gospel in a way that reveals who God is Paul seems vexed by this question, this thing that we've talked about here, is how do I love everyone perfectly all the time? How do I love Festus? How do I love my fellow believers? How do I love the common Jewish people out there who need to hear the gospel? How do I love the chief priest who's my enemy, the principal men of the cities who hate me? How do I love them all? well he knew this he seemed convinced of this it wasn't by going to Jerusalem and then the last thing that we see here after Paul makes his his statement of of where he is and then when he's asked do you wish to go to Jerusalem he's, he knows he's not really being asked he knows that Festus is not just trying to say, hey, let's, let's, let's talk about this, let's work this out, that if he says yes or he says no, if, if he doesn't appeal to Caesar, he's going to go to Jerusalem. And Paul understands that and he points out to Festus, look, You know you should let me go. You know we shouldn't have any more trials. And certainly we shouldn't go to Jerusalem for a trial. You know that. He's kind of revealing what what it says there when it says, but Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. He knows this is a way to try to appease these angry Jewish leaders. He even says, Look, if if I've done something that deserves death, kill me. But I clearly haven't, and you know it. And he says, It doesn't make sense to go to Jerusalem because we know how this is going to end. Either you're going to be Pontius Pilate allowing the mob to kill me, or They're going to attack us on the way. And what we ultimately see through all of this is when, in verse 12, when he says, Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to to Caesar you shall go. What did God want? God wanted Paul in Rome. What does this show us? God's in control. God's in control. And here's Paul. Had he chosen to trust in his own way, tried to make his own way to Rome, maybe he never gets there, but now he's going, even when he didn't understand. And what we're going to read about next week, to give you a preview next week, you know what Paul's going to get a chance to do before he, leaves Rome, before he leaves Caesarea? He's going to get to share his testimony and share the gospel with the royal, the king, all the military tribunals, the military officers, all the leading men, and I'm assuming also the women of the city and Festus himself. He's, he will have never spoken before such an influential group and he would have never been given the opportunity except Festus is now puzzled because he's like I, yeah, I got to send them to Rome but I don't know what to write in the letter. What are the charges? God by following God, Paul has the opportunity to do what he believes is his main job, sharing the gospel and doing it before the most powerful people in that area. Amazing. You know, as th- at the beginning of each year, you know, we think about something that I really think we should think about just about every day, but we think about you know what will the next year bring what will 2023 bring you know a lot of people are like, like they like to make resolutions but for christians i don't really think we need resolutions i think as christians it's the same it's what we've been talking about here that 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 in this year we should be doing what we we're doing in the last year that we would want to know the gospel more know the word of god more have a deeper understanding of the truth that's there about of who god is of who jesus is of what his kingdom is what his church is what he has for our lives to understand that and that we would faithfully live the gospel and knowing that we're not going to always do it perfect we're going to make mistakes but our motivation, our desire is to consistently live the gospel so that when we don't have opportunity to speak the gospel, we have the opportunity to show the gospel. And of course, the third is that this would be a year that we're, we're sharing the gospel. I think we need to be relentless in our study of the gospel. Relentless in our desire to want to live the gospel. Relentless in wanting to share the gospel. It's going to lead us to uncomfortable situations. But if I'm going to share the gospel with my non-Christian friends or my non-Christian family or neighbors or others, I want to be like Paul, where my life measures up to the gospel that I'm sharing. I think also as a church, we need to be a church that that is not just studying the gospel, studying the word, but through the study of the word, it is bringing us together as a church. What is the next step for you? For some of you who've been visiting with us and been fellowshipping with us, we love it. And we don't ever want you to, to, to stop. But we would love for you to start thinking about, is this the place? Is this the community of faith that, that where God wants you to bring your gifts, where God has, has people to pour into your life? Where we can build a stronger community. For some of you who've been members of this church for years, and it's kind of been the same for years, you kind of hang with the same people, you kind of live at the same level, and it's not bad, but it's very comfortable. If I were to give you a challenge for 2023, become uncomfortable. Do something different that will help you be more Christ-like, that will help us be more of a church. You've been going to the same Bible studies, keep going, but add another one. Never come on Wednesday, come on Wednesday. You've been hanging out online because it kind of, you know, I like to do online because it allows me to multitask, but really, maybe the next step after now that, you know, COVID is kind of somewhat subsided, is start coming back in person. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean all the time, but at least sometimes. Talk to John, talk to me. If you're new in your faith and you're like, I want to know more, I want to learn more, but, you know, your classes and Bible studies are too advanced for me, I need something more basic, talk to us, we'd love to help you. Or some of you may be in the opposite area, you're like, "You know the stuff that you guys are teaching is great, but I'm, I, I need more. I need something more deeper that, that maybe just you know we're not able to provide. We would love we would love to meet with you, love to help you. I would challenge you to look around this room even today and find. This year, you're going to build relationships with people that you don't know yet. I don't know what it's going to be. But I know this that if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be relentless in living the gospel and standing for the gospel, we need to be relentless in being more and more His church. His church united, so in love with God, so in love with Jesus, so in love with the Word, but also so in love with each other. That doesn't happen by us just getting together once a week. And yet, that is the witness to the world. Jesus told his own disciples, they will know me because of your love for one another. Let's be relentless in how we love one another and reveal God to this world.